0: Landline.
1: Hi, this is Saul. Can you put me through to Alex?
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Landline. Thank you for stopping by. If we haven't seen you, happy new year. Hope your diet and abstinence of alcohol are going well. Today our guest is Saul, a great friend of mine who is currently living in Berkeley. We talk about my trip to New York City this weekend, his experience trying to get food at the Super Bowl Stadium with an app the last time he was there, and then we have a long and uh, pretty cool conversation about Donald Trump, the Iowa caucuses, and the political system in the country. If you're into politics, I'm going to have another pod this week with my friend David Temple. Both of us worked for Howard Dean when he ran for president 12 years ago, and we recap our experience on the Dean campaign up to the Dean scream and beyond. If you like the show, the best thing you can do for us is tell a friend, spread the word, listen on iTunes, listen on SoundCloud, listen on talkforaliving.com. Other than that, enjoy the show. It's a good one. See you soon. Landline.
1: Hi, Alex. It's Saul.
0: Hi, Saul. Can you hear me okay?
1: I can. How about you? Here's the bell.
0: It's as clear as the bell that we own right now.
1: Oh, terrific. Glad to be here.
0: Well, you're going to be excited because you've caught me in a little bit of a funk, so you're going to have plenty to work with.
1: Well, that's nice, because I'm a little irritable myself, so I think we're going to mesh pretty well for this.
0: (laughs) I just walked in from a trip to New York.
1: Really? That's enough to put you in a terrible mood for at least two weeks.
0: And I had high expectations, and I had some very blooming roses, but there were also just some incredibly sharp thorns, so... It's funny about roses and thorns that really you're always more apt to or I'm always more apt to concentrate on the thorns.
1: Yeah, I mean I mean thorns make for, you know, for better stories often. Now, for New York, do you You know, it's kind of like what I always say about Vegas that the two best moments of any trip to Vegas are when you're in the airplane about to land and when you're in the airplane taking off. <laughs> and everything in between is kind of like you know, much less than that. (laughs) So would you say that New York kind of like falls into that category? Like when you see that skyline coming up and you're excited to be there. And then when you see that skyline in the rear view mirror and couldn't be happier to
0: be leaving. I can definitely say that the second scenario that you described was, is a little bit more fresh in my brain. But New York
1: is a thorny city.
0: It's so I, I can. I think I'm, I'm getting better at pinpointing specific reasons why I feel a certain way. And I honestly think that a lot of how I feel right now is because the logistics of my trip were not as I wished they could have been. Um, number one, we brought our dogs and we brought our car. And that's because we don't really have a suitable dog sitter because we treat our dogs like, I guess, every. Childless thirty-something couple, like there are children, and so we have like have to treat them with such special treatment. Also, the well,
1: you you don't want the like you know the keg drinking assholes next door to be in charge of like feeding and walking your dogs when you're gone.
0: That's true. The guys next door are not candidates. I realized on the way down when I was complaining about it before we even got there that Anna said, "Well, what about asking someone at school?" So I do have 150 classmates, some of whom live in dorms. Maybe they want to be in a house for a weekend taking care of a dog and, like, ordering pizza and watching TV. Uh, like
1: us when, like, us going to, um, well, I won't use any last names here, but we, we went to plenty of houses for quote-unquote dogs today in New York, for example.
0: Yeah, and it worked out great, right? Yeah, minus the broken martini glass or two. <laughs> So we had the dogs, we had the car and then, so the dogs for me, it wasn't a big deal. I just, I like want the animal. There's some part of me that anthropomorphizes the dog and is like, oh God, the dog's having such a bad time. The dog hasn't been out enough. The dog doesn't like the concrete. The dog hasn't seen grass. And so I'm like always, I'm having a running commentary about that. And then the other thing is we stayed with my sister and she was very nice to have us and we had a great time seeing her but her apartment is tiny and we basically slept on the floor. I actually was lucky enough to get an air mattress but Anna had to sleep literally on the floor next to me. So nobody slept well. That's
1: nice, That's nice that you, uh, you let her take a comfortable floor.
0: She insisted. Wow. Because right. there's nothing worse for her than when I don't have a good night's sleep. Her, she would rather be up in the entire night and not sleep a wink than have me wake up in the middle of the night and start complaining about how I can't sleep. Because
1: basically by her logic, let's say that she wakes up really sore and tired and uncomfortable, that might, let's say, take her day from like 100% to 50%. But if you wake up sore and uncomfortable and angry, then your mood could take the day from 100% to like 10%.
0: <laughs> yeah, something like that. I mean... And she that just she's a better sleeper than I am, um, so yeah. we didn't sleep very much. But even more than that, we were just never in a space where we could kind of get our act organized. Now I think I know it's been years, and now you're a very successful and wealthy person, so you don't have this problem anymore. But to not be able to go into a either whether it's even a even a room that has a a pseudo door that you can close and just reset yourself when you're away from your uh, home base you're kind of at the whim of you know being in the tv room or wherever the living room you kind of are just your whole there's the weekend just kind of is one big socialization with some bad sleeps in between versus having a second or two to collect yourself or take a nap or sleep in or use your phone in bed or whatever it is that you want to do so well
1: i know I, I i agree with that completely and and that's why when i Visit people, and this really goes back all the way to like ten years ago when I didn't have a lot of money, and I'd still pay a hundred bucks to like not stay at Gabe and Tim's house and check myself into Jazz on the Park Hostel just because I couldn't stand being under someone else's roof where I couldn't hit that reset button. Right. So I'm, I'm totally with you, and I and I could launch into a long sort of monologue about the, the virtues of staying at hotels rather than people's houses because you're not under their roof in the sense that, you know, you can kind of chart your own course and, you know, have an effect on your destiny that you can't always have when you're just a house guest. It's a different type of status. But I I won't do that here, but I could easily get into it. Oh,
0: well, maybe you should do that here. But yeah, it's it's even just the... It's just a mental frame of mind. It's not even about the physical aspect of showing up five minutes later or sleeping in an extra 10 minutes. It's the fact that you... Mentally know you're in charge of your decisions, and that takes a weight off your shoulder, and that's all you need to turn like sort of a an uneasiness into a confidence that's necessary when attacking a large metropolitan area such as New York. Um, well, a
1: perfect perfect example is like you know, and even involving an air mattress was like several weeks ago. I visited my brother in New Orleans, and he's got he's got a comfortable two-bedroom apartment, although obviously one apartment is just a music studio, so he really doesn't have a two-bedroom. But I was in the living room on an air mattress, and it was an air mattress where, like, it seems really comfortable when you lie down when you're going to sleep, especially if you're, like, you know, four drinks in and, like, ready for bed. And then there was a leak, so, like, during the night, the air just seeps out of the air mattress. And I woke up feeling like I was kind of mired in quicksand, like it was hard to move my arms and legs because I was in this huge indentation, kind of stuck in this air mattress. And it's not fun. You know, it's kind of like when you sleep on a waterbed, almost.
0: It's worse. Um, I mean, every, everyone knows everyone... That's the thing. That's the amazing thing. No one has made an air mattress that doesn't get a hole in it. It just hasn't happened. We can, we literally can fly to the moon with like liquid nitrogen, but we cannot manufacture an air mattress that doesn't get a hole in it. Every air mattress gets a hole in it, and you. Well, I, I almost just feel like they do it on purpose. Like I feel like in the factory, like the end of the air
1: mattress assembly line is just like some asshole like with a needle just pricking it and like
0: knowing that you're going to come back and buy a new air mattress like two months in so not only that but you wake up in the middle the only good part of waking up in the middle of the night being deflated which the air mattress i slept on last night has has not yet acquired a hole in it although probably the taking it out of the bag and rolling it back in this weekend will will put a hole in it um is the one good thing about having a hole is that feeling of being able to just press that button and just, like, inflate the mattress under you in the middle of the night and f- know that you'll have at least two more hours of comfort before you wake up again to a deflated air mattress.
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, and had my technological savvy extended to sort of the, the consciousness that I could do that, it would have been a great move to do. But it was, it was dark and the pump button wasn't really in reach. And so I just sort of like floundered and just like the whole night it's this terrible feeling if you can't pump up because you feel yourself just like gradually heading forwards in this kind of puddle of like air mattress.
0: Is that when you got the five star hotel?
1: Yeah. So literally anyway, I woke up in the morning and it was just like no hard feelings. And I just checked myself into a 1600 square foot suite at the West End <laughs> and I slept like a baby. I, I've never slept better in my life. Uh, it was fun. I invited my brother over instead of me being at his house. And everything worked out for the best. And I could go in and hit the reset button whenever I wanted. In fact, I was in the suite. So even when other people were in the suite, there would be times when I'd just go into my master bedroom and hit the reset button. And the point is that I felt that I was better off, the trip was better off, Uh, The city of New Orleans is better off because it turns out that there's like 11 different organizations that all tax you when you stay in the hotel. And so I contributed money to like everything from like the Port Authority to like the Chamber of Commerce. So it was a win-win basically for all concerned.
0: So my problem is that I don't have currently at this stage in my life, I don't have the luxury in a city like New York especially to pull out a credit card and just find even a, you know, substandard hotel to stay at. And in this specific case, Gabe was out of town, so I didn't want to stay with him. But you're bringing up an interesting point, which is I need to find a way to tell my sister in, you know, I had a great time with her this weekend, but I don't want to stay with her next time. And it's not because of anything other than the fact that her apartment isn't well-suited for guests. So I will even, like... You know, I'll wake up Chipper at seven a.m. and like run 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 across the Brooklyn Bridge and meet her for coffee and breakfast. Like we don't even have to miss like the end of the night or the beginning of the morning. But I just don't want to sleep there. Or I need the situation to drastically change, which I feel like is sort of not her responsibility to me. If she doesn't want to like put the money into getting better guest accoutrement because she doesn't have that many guests and because her apartment is tiny anyway then i think the writings on the wall i should just stay someplace else
1: oh well, yeah absolutely cuz i i think that when you have a, you know in a perfect world everyone would have a giant spacious cottage or guest house or bungalow and any time they had house guests the house guests could just hang out there they'd have their own tea their own entrance everything would be perfect but you know obviously we don't live in in that universe and I think that when you have house guests, it just creates this weird imbalance where you have like the person who lives there is trying to do what they're trying to do. And you have the house guest who's trying to do whatever they're trying to do on their trip. And there's all kinds of just like weird, awkward clashes, even when it is a sibling or a parent or like, you know, some a dear friend or something like that, where you're just constantly sort of like bumping into the fact that like, you know, it's small space for multiple people who have different agendas about what they want to be doing. So I'm, I, I always feel that if you remove that element, then you can just kind of like hang out on equal terms and it's just a better trip for all concerned.
0: Yeah. You've always been good at understanding that. I, you haven't always been elegant about delivering the message, but you've always been great at, about understanding that. And I think there is something that's like fun about sh- like shacking up at the house with, With somebody else, but my parents always, and I might have even said this on the podcast, like, you know, in one of the first ones, I don't remember, it doesn't matter, my parents always had this amazing model where, like, their really good friends would come up and visit, and they'd get there, and within 15 minutes, both my parents would have been like, well... I'm off to, you know, one of them would be like, I'm off to see a movie. And the other one would be like, I'm going to, you know, a, a lecture in town, like have a good day. And they would just like both leave the house and go someplace. And the house guests were sort of there to fend for themselves. And you knew at 5:30 there would be a cheese plate out and you could serve yourself whatever from the fridge to drink and dinner was together and, the, you know, planning an outing for the next day, certainly. But if there was something on the books for that Saturday before the house guests had made a plan to come, or even if after they just decided to stick with it. And I think that that kind of, it, in one ways, it's crazy, but in other ways it creates a nice independence of like, I'm glad you're here and you're not negatively affecting my routine.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. Look, I think also that you guys, you know, you guys have a good house for, you know, for house guests to stay at. It's kind of, it's very much like, you know, it's a spatial thing to me. Like, I think that, um, you know, oftentimes it's kind of like, historically speaking, the small countries that are just crammed right up against each other seem to get in the most fight and go to war the most often because they're just constantly kind of scraping over border issues. And I think that when it comes to house guests, it's kind of the same thing where you need, you need space so you're not constantly seeing each other, you're not treading on each other's feet. You know, an ideal kind of, like, house guest situation is where you can spend some time, whether in or out, and you're not just constantly bumping in to, like, the other person who's, like, staying there. And if you have that freedom to wander around, it might reduce the sort of uh, the wars that your nation is, is embarking
0: on. So back to New York quickly, just so I can get it off my chest. So the, car, the dogs resulted in me being worried about the dogs. The car resulted in a parking ticket, which it, it wasn't even like a 90% chance we'd get one. It was a 100% <laughs> chance we would get one the second we drove and it. it. Ob- and it
1: was obviously so much more expensive than a normal parking ticket because it's a New York parking It
0: ticket. was 65 bucks and it felt cheap. And um, it had snowed like the blizzard get-in or whatever they called it like 10 days ago. So there were piles of dirty snow that were sort of melting and then just piles of trash that hadn't been picked up all over the city because the garbage trucks couldn't get through. It was like the winters. There were no leaves on the trees, of course, but it just had that grayness to it. And the city just seemed like annoying to navigate and a little bit ugly And, uh, I don't know, like the romance wasn't there as strongly as it usually is. And maybe again, the like lack of a nice home base to have a cup of tea or a beer and and hang around. And my sister's apartment is great. Again, it's just a space thing, but Um, The people we hung out with were amazing. And you realize that that's kind of like what New York is all about. It's about like interacting with people, whether that's on the stage and you don't know them or at a restaurant or at a breakfast or at a bar, seeing the people on the subway. It's all about humans there. You know, there's no natural beauty in New York. I mean, there is if you're really mining for it. And I know that plenty of artists have tried to like show the natural beauty of New York because that's all they had to work with but in reality it's all about the human interaction and we had a great time with my sister as i've said repeatedly almost to the point where it sounds like we didn't and uh we had a great time we went to a yoga class with hannah overlock who's now a yoga teacher and we went to her class she didn't know we were coming until the day before we're like are you teaching she was so we went to the masonic lodge on 29th street um and like or 24th or something in sixth avenue and had this awesome ninety-minute yoga class, um, culminating with the fire alarm getting set off right when we were wiggling our fingers and toes, getting ready to say Namaste to each other. Um, wow! So po- a post shavasana fire alarm. Correct, a post shavasana fire alarm. <laughs> that,
1: that's a great way to sort of uh, ease out of your state of like comfort and bliss.
0: And you know how yoga teachers they like sort of quietly say, "Now, like, start to like come." Your, make your breathing a little more conscious and wiggle your fingers and toes and they're sort of trying to not be heard a little bit and then ah just like the loudest and you know you're in like lower midtown Manhattan you, you are immediately like okay what's going on and how concerned but you
1: couldn't are. but couldn't couldn't that in a nutshell just be a metaphor for like everything about New York that you'll find moments of just true like contentment of happiness and they're always going to be interrupted by a loud jangling fire alarm <laughs>
0: a little bit a little bit um new york and then we walked up to the ace hotel and got a stump town coffee which is a little bit of like a wormhole into portland which was fun for both of us and then went and saw brian Hansberry, who hopefully is going to do voiceover for this pod not necessarily this episode but for this podcast who's becoming this sort of sounds like becoming the star we always knew he'd be um And we went to Roberta's, the famous pizza place in Bushwick with him, and they have, like, a little tent city in the back, a tiki bar, and it was, like, all warm and well lit, and there was, like, old Nintendo on a TV people were playing, and we were there in the middle of the day. It felt like the perfect place to go hang out with a friend in the middle of the day to make it feel like it was the evening, um... And uh, we heard all about Brian's bustling musical improv and one-man show career that he has going on. And then went and saw a newborn baby of our friends Abby and Tyler, and that was amazing. And then went back to the floor and slept and got the hell out of there in the morning. Um, So that's the, the short, short version, which we can delve into more. But it was just a little bit, I think... Next time, I don't want to take the dogs. I want to leave the car in New Haven. I want to take the train, and I want to, like, navigate the city the way I used to when I lived there. Where it's like you feel independent. You feel light on your feet. You feel like if someone texts you that they're nearby in a neighborhood, you can just go there. You know, it's like that's the beauty of New York is, like, making improvisational decisions to just do what you're doing and not necessarily always – have it be like you have to circle back to the home base and make sure everything's square. And that's kind of what the dogs force us to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, looking down at my notes, I have a few different comments and questions, but one of them is that you, you definitely sort of, if, if I could have like just written out a checklist of the things likely to put some thorns in your New York weekend, then I definitely, I probably would have forgotten to put in the dog, but if someone had mentioned the dog, I definitely would have put that in on like the minus side because of the stress. Uh, the car, definitely, I think that cars are just cars should stay in New Haven when you're going to New York. It's kind of just if thing you, you park, you jump on the Metro North, you get off at Grand Central, and then it's just fun and you're on foot and you can figure it out or you can be lazy and take a cab or the subway or whatever you want to do. But it's just, you're you're subtracting some of the factors, basically, that are likely to make you annoyed and irritable and just always conscious that you have to be, like, thinking about something else. So I, I definitely think that given, you know, when you factor in, like, dreary weather and, like, you know, a very, like, small sleeping situation, it's basically, like, a large team of people spent, like, three months crafting, like, you know, Alex's bad New York experience, and then we just, like, put it into play
0: this weekend. Except for the people. We had such great conversations, such great laughs. Yeah, totally. Reconnected. Yeah, but you're right, in terms of logistically.
1: So the last last thing I like, um, partly because it's been, and because of uh, God's good graces and all that, it's been a while since I've gotten one, but we all know how horrible it is to see a parking ticket, and I want you to just take me through a kind of play-by-play of like as you approached your car and your windshield came into view and just the emotions going through you when you saw that little square of white on the on the windshield
0: well it's such it's so funny cuz i don't know the perfect analogy off the top of my head but it's almost like you're a medieval um battle planner when you're parking in new york and so you've you know, you've lived through battles before. You've seen men fall around you on the field to good opponents. They've come from behind. They've come from in front. They've come from the side. They've come from up above. Like the opponent, it comes from everywhere, and you need to go in and be like the most, uh, you know, deft warrior of all time. So, with that in mind, with that approach in mind, we pull into the city. My sister's street in in Chinatown usually has great parking on Orchard, and so, but the, you know, the, so complicating the issue is, of course, the trash and the snow, right? So right away, the first thing that comes into my seasoned head is, are the rules different? Is there been an announcement on Twitter that I don't know about? How, you know, is it, uh, is one side suspended, one side's not? Did trash shake it? It's like all these, you know, we, we live together in New York, I live New, in New York for a couple of years after and before that like we know this as former new Yorkers like there's always a monkey wrench when it comes to the parking situation it's never it's never yeah,
1: it's like it's like when it's like when you're driving and there's a cop behind you where like you can be doing everything right and you're still just kind of feeling you're doing something wrong and you're going to get pulled over
0: so i pull into a spot and the of course the first thing is you got to when you have the car there mistake 1 we all know now you got to get everything out of the car. So everything that could be stolen including the Tupperware that you had your, you know, leftovers in on the ride down needs to be transported up into the place that you're staying. So imagine that process with two dogs, a dog bed, yada yada yada. So I didn't even get to feed the meter at first, but I I get up to the apartment and I'm like I'm going to go down and feed the meter. So I go back down. The sign that usually gives the information has been has a poster board over it that has a sign that says raise the plow. So they've covered up the parking regulations with a new handwritten sign for the plowmen. So wow. n- now things are becoming more convoluted. And then I realize that the other sign that basically I'm fine. It's it's Friday night after whatever time I need to worry about it. It's legal parking. I asked somebody is this a spot? He has no idea. I look in front of me. I look behind me. It's a spot. I'm good. I lock the car. I go there. And I go upstairs. And it's fine. We go out that night. We see the car on the way in. No ticket. It's all good. The next morning, we get up. We go to yoga. We go get a coffee. We take the subway back down to the apartment. It's sunny, actually, even though I depicted it all as gray. It must have just been the buildings. And we're walking back jolly, ba-ba-da-ba-da. We turn the corner to the place we're going, and there's a ticket on it. And it was just as simple. It's like I thought of all of the crazy things that I could have been defeated by. And it was the simplicity of it was a new day. And starting at 9 a.m., you needed to feed the meter.
1: <laughs> so you, know, you, you made it through all, all of the various dangers. And then you just kind of got like snapped up by the most basic rule of parking
0: ever. It was like we'd packed everything we needed to go on the adventure, but like we lost the car keys, or what? I don't know. I mean, we can we could sit here and spitball analogies forever. But basically, the most simple or no, you packed an amazing beach barbecue and forgot the lighter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um there it was. And then you know, it's the it's the f- the funniest thing is that psychological moment where you switch from there's no time to have hope anymore. There's no hope stolen because the, there was never a moment of hope. You you see the ticket and the entire transaction has been completed. That's it. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, and obviously you know that it's not going to get better you're not going to like wiggle out or like there's not going to be good news about
0: it. Now I did take an iPhone photo of the street sign that had been covered up by the raise the plow poster board and I will noodle with the idea of sending that in to them and trying to see if through not through not I know I don't have an argument but maybe through like the horrible you know crazy bureaucracy of the New York City parking enforcement I will like slip through the cracks maybe
1: now just imagine whoever's on the other end of that like who's actually sitting there in an office somewhere just receiving like your plea for mercy like what's that person like what's going through their mind and
0: let's be honest like is there any human emotion left in them I think that they are a probably a mother and they live in Queens and they're probably a good person at heart, and I think that they make over a hundred thousand dollars a year, and they have a pension. And I'm not going to say that they're only potentially Latina or black, but that's probably like I don't know. It might be a white. It might be it might be a white lady from Staten Island. Who knows? And yeah, yeah. they. I don't know. Wouldn't you go through waves of humanity in that job, right? It's like you couldn't only have no humanity. Some humanity you'd have to get back at some time, and then you'd have. Well, um, I I
1: view it. I I view it as a coat check at a restaurant where you leave it at the door when you walk in, and you pick it up on your way out in the afternoon. What their job? No, their humanity. (laughs) They're they're not taking any shred of decency or mercy. In with them. They might have that, and they might, you know, grab it on their way home for dinner, but they're sure as hell not sitting down filled with those emotions of, like,
0: brotherly love and whatnot. Ah, uh, so, anyways, and so that's it. But, you know, life is good other than that. What did you do this weekend? Uh, gosh, let's see
1: here. San Francisco yesterday Walked around, had lunch with a friend, had a drink with another friend, walked around more in between. Um, San Francisco's weird this week because they're gearing up for the Super Bowl that's not even in San Francisco, but an hour south of it. But everyone's just pretending like it is in San Francisco because who really wants to you know, talk about going to party in Santa Clara? And so, like, you'll just be walking along, and you'll see this, like, kind of giant inflatable, like, circus tent covered in, like, you know, black and gold for, like, you know, the Super Bowl and everything, where, like, a normal, like, you know, like, park used to be or something. So, you know, the, the city is just kind of it's, – it's weird this week just because they're, they're gearing up for a huge event that's not really theirs in a technical sense, but everyone's just along for the ride that it is.
0: And the city in general probably doesn't really care about, like, the people – well, it seems it seems like
1: they do it. You know, it's tough to tell. And obviously, like, three or four days from now, you know, it will be different. But it seems like everyone does care. They're just kind of – they've all just convinced themselves that, like, San Francisco is hosting the Super Bowl and it's going to be awesome, you know, and, and all of that. You know, I, I don't think they care more than they care about, like, any other, you know, thing that happened to be taking place. But every everyone seems like they're trying to, like, you know, get all lathered up about it. <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, you, you the the game will be played a full sixty miles south of San Francisco. You know, it's not it's not like it's taking place really like even in their like backyard or something like that.
0: Have you been to that stadium?
1: Oh yeah. My last apartment was walking distance to the stadium. Like when I'd see a Niners game, like I just I'd literally walk to the stadium. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful stadium. It's it's kind of like the epitome of what I guess like a billion or $1.3 billion corporate stadium is all about these days, you know, and I haven't been to like, it's not like I've been to a lot of football stadiums. Obviously this is one of like, in terms of its brand newness, it's probably like, if not the newest stadium out there, like definitely one of them. And it's, you know, it's impressive and it's beautiful and it's, you know, it's fun to be in. And it's just like, it's such a corporate, you know, building. Just every part of it, you know. It's I remember there's like, there's a, I was trying to get food and there was like, there are lines. There were like, at the last game I was at, there were like a bunch of different lines with tons of people. And then I found like one register, like totally open, like a woman like staffing it. And there was just no one there. Like, so obviously. It's like when you're in a supermarket and you get really excited because you find, like, the one open lane. So I go up and I try to order, you know, nachos and peanuts and whatever stupid crap, you know, you're supposed to get. And um, she's just like, I'm sorry, we're like, you can only order from us with an app. So I was like, I can't give you a credit card. I can't give you cash. Like, I can't do any of that. And she's like, no, like, you, this is reserved for, like, our app. And so, like, literally I was standing there so annoyed trying to like log into the app store and download the app for Levi stadium so that I could order nachos through it with my Apple, like pay account and then not have to wait in line. And it just made me feel that there were like a lot of problems
0: with the world. That is such low hanging fruit. Like that's one of those moments where you truly don't understand how someone of the same species went through all the meetings to get to that place and say like yeah. we're open, like it happened, like we just had a year and a half of meetings, and here it is, like we made our dream a reality. We have like an app-only commodity food stand in a state, a, a soulless corporate stadium, an hour from the city, that is like the epitome of technology, money, and. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't even know. Like, yeah, li-
1: literally in the center of Silicon Valley. Exactly. Like, it couldn't be more, like, perfectly placed.
0: And why wouldn't you take cash? Like, so, but, I mean, from a business sense, it's an interesting thing. Like, so there is, there's an upside to that for them. Them turning you away and getting you to download the app is worth more to them than you buying the food. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a in a kind of in the world that they
1: visualize, I would have been sitting in my seat watching the game and I would have said, OK, I'm hungry or I won a beer, whatever it is. And I would have just whipped out my phone and logged in and punched in my order. And then I would have sauntered up and grabbed my food and felt really smug and superior about the fact that I didn't have to wait in line and everyone else did. So that's like you know, and I'm, you know, all taking aside the smugness and superiority, That that's the goal and that's how it's supposed to work. Now, they didn't think that, you know, for me, like I walk in and I'm like, before finding my way to my seats, I want to get food so I don't have to stand up immediately and go back and I don't have this app on my phone. And so then suddenly I'm standing there begging this woman to take my money for the stupid nachos. And having her just sadly shaking her head and saying that's impossible, I'm not allowed to.
0: So, what did you end up doing? Did you go back to the line, or did you get the app?
1: Well, obviously, it didn't work out. You know, there's no, there's no happy ending here, Alex. You, you should know that.
0: No, but did you, um, did, you did you get food at all? Like, I want to know if they made a sale.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, what happened in the end was I downloaded the app. Um, Something went wrong and I after standing there like 10 minutes trying to like log in or whatever I couldn't figure it out. I just couldn't swing it. So then I gave up and got Went back to the line where my friend had been But she was already out of line So I had lost my spot in that line and had to go back to the end of that line And by the time I got the food and spent my money You know, it was like the quarter was done and I was in a much worse mood about everything
0: Yuck! Count me out of that situation.
1: Yeah, but you know if your hands are tied. Like we, you can't sit through a you know a sporting event in that situation. Not not with the the peanuts
0: and the nachos. It's true. Yeah. Hold on one so second. So anyway, hold yeah, on. Yeah, that's okay. I'm just taking. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm taking pauses so I can stop the recording and save it. I'm just like being so ultra careful from now on. Like everything's going great. Yeah and I can edit this out. I don't want to screw the flow up at all cuz it's going great, but I just I can't. I know that if I don't record this first podcast we do that you'll just never podcast with me again. So Yeah, it's true. So whatever whatever, whatever I'm risking in terms of annoying you on the small scale, I'm I'm making up for it on the big scale. Um all right. Well, it seems to be like no, a, I did. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: No, no. Go for it.
0: I was gonna say that seems to be like a nice uh a nice little get to know you bit there a little intro into maybe some of our our meteor topics that you you so eloquently wrote out for us or i mean
1: yeah i mean we got we got plenty of material
0: um did you um I liked some of your... Let, let's do a little politics.
1: Yeah, let's get into that. Uh, Why not? I think it's a, uh, it's a good day, given, given what starts tomorrow.
0: So I have a personal connection to the Oregon standoff. In, oh, yeah, yeah. In that I lived yeah. in Oregon. And I know I'm probably one of the few people who knows generally where those guys were and that town burns oregon that they kept on referring to i've driven through and driven to and it's really in the middle of nowhere i mean that that area of oregon that those guys were camped out at is one of the only places in the country where you can set off like homemade test rockets like you know there are now like pretty high end kits where you can you can like build your own rocket and send it up into like you can send it up as high as like f- I think 30 or 40,000 feet. Um all right. And there are yeah. ho- there are hobbyists who collect these things and do them and one of the only launch pads in the country is sort of in eastern south, you know, eastern central eastern Oregon because there's no flight patterns that go over there. There's no there are no planes that fly there because it's just it's in the middle of nowhere. It's really on the way to nowhere. It's just a bunch of beautiful, open, kind of what you would think of as um, cliche cowboy land. It's like sagebrush and um, it's, you know, little rolling brown hills uh, into some bigger mountains. But what did I, I guess my thing on on that whole thing is I didn't really get too far into it, but I can't believe they had to shoot that guy. That to me was just like, did that guy really have to die at the end?
1: Well, okay, okay. I'm, I, I, will say, and I, you know, I, I watched. I'm not saying I know a lot about it, but I, you know, I watched the video that they released, and I, you know, I, um, you know, have read a bunch about it, and I'm, just, I'm just saying that at, at a certain point, it, it comes down to the fact that like, if a bunch of cops pull you over, and, you know, they're like, um. You know, and it's a confrontation and you've spent the last months talking about how you'd rather literally be dead than, you know, have your freedom trampled on and brandishing guns and basically making the case that you're in a life or death, you know, ready to go down fighting. So if you've if you set the table like that when you get pulled over, if if you get out of the car and you know, you're reaching your hands down towards the pocket or your waist, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're kind of, you're kind of asking for it. You've got to, you you got to understand that, you know, you've, you've created a situation where, yeah, you're, you know, there's a lot of people who now believe that you're willing to go down fighting and arm to the teeth and all that stuff.
0: So, I, you know, I,
1: I'm not, I'm not trying again. I, I'm, I'm just saying that in, in that situation, the guy shouldn't have had his hands anywhere, but
0: sky high my opinion yeah i look everything you just said is very logical it's hard to find an opposing point of view you i wonder like how come none of these guys just like how, where's the old like shoot him in the leg and wound him and then like get him get him into cuffs is that just not that's not a, a manageable thing for people who are trained with weapons that's that's just not how yeah, you i've ju- been i think.
1: been yeah that's that's a very good point um they don't really seem that interested in doing that. I, I kind of get the sense that, and, like, it's not like I read the training manuals, but you really... Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. It's a good point, and I do kind of feel that their philosophy is, like, if we have to reach the point where we're, like, aiming a gun and pulling the trigger at another person, then, you know, fuck it. Let's just take them out. Yeah. Well, what... And, so- if, you watch, and if you watch this video... <laughs> A guy, you know, like, a cop is like hiding in the woods with a rifle, and he just runs out behind the guy and shoots him. Really? So he's not. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like he, you know, the van crashes, and then there's like cops all over the road from the roadblock, and then he just sees this cop with a rifle like sneak out of the woods behind him. Um, you know, and and the rest is uh, kind of downhill from there. From I guy's point of view. I
0: can't bring myself to to watch those videos it's not because like i can't take it i just it's like i know that the technology now exists to see all these things you just used to read about in the paper and used to not be so clear but i my weird like landline brain wants to just like keep that part of the world alive where we actually don't have a clear understanding of exactly what happened i don't always want to know exactly what happened i don't always want to see a video of what happened it's just is that does that make sense at all it's just I'm not sure that anything becomes more clear from a philosophical sense just because you can see it on the video. Like, like it's right there on the video. He was reaching for his waistband, and that's why we shot him. It's like, all right, I get it. I just, I these these are like eight whack job guys who went out in the middle of nowhere because of cameras, because of social media. They were able to make a stink. Like, isn't it weird that people in, like, probably the BBC and other places are, like, talking about this when it's just, like, eight random guys in the middle of nowhere in Oregon? I mean, I've been there. It's not – they weren't in a noticeable or – you know, it, it's it's nothing. Where they were standing is nothing. It's nothingville, USA. There's nothing going well, on yeah. there.
1: But I think it plays into these, you know, really kind of long and deeply felt American – beliefs and values and and questions about you know about this really issue of like the government versus private citizen and this kind of antagonistic relationship that's sort of like barely controlled by you know the constitution and whenever these things periodically happen you know whether you know every it seems like every five or ten years there's some kind of like pretty bad you know episode of this kind between the government and the private citizen. And I think maybe one of the reasons why people in England care about it, you know, in some ways, is because it's just always been this uneasy balance between, um, you know, what, what a person as a citizen is allowed to do and what the government's allowed to do to them or for them. You know, one of the interesting things I thought was how, like, none of the GOP candidates wanted to talk about it. It was an awkward issue for them. And the reason is, Because you have these guys where, like, a huge part of their sticking point is just the government is inept, incompetent, evil, you know, out to get the private person, not a good thing, get it as small as possible, you know, crews abolish the IRS, you know. I won't go into, like, specific positions, but it's a very anti-government, you know, view that they're playing into. And then, on the other hand, they're all about law and order you know, everything about everything that they're saying is law and order. We have to enforce the rules. We have to make sure that, you know, um, people aren't breaking the rules, whether it's with, you know, security or immigration or national security or anything like that. And so the Oregon thing put them in this weird thing where, you know, on the one hand, screw the government, it's bad. Private citizens should be able to have more land, all of that stuff. And on the other hand, you obviously can't condone a bunch of people taking guns and, like, occupying, you know, uh, space. And so
0: all of them were just like, I don't want to touch that. It's funny, Saul, because you bring up a much larger point, which is a great one to to discuss. Where is the Republican Party on anything right now? I, and this is not an endorsement of the Democratic Party, and this is not an anti-presidential stance that I have. But we could go through issue by issue and they have no clue what they're talking about. Because like the idea, exactly what you're saying, like the Republicans are the ones who are constantly trying to get armored personnel carriers in local police departments. Trying to like make sure that the police and fire bills are through the roof and get them the fanciest equipment and the fanciest guns. And let's expand drone capabilities to, you know, large metropolitan police forces like L.A. and New York. And, you know, we have to have body armor and let's, but we need you know, let's make, let's sign big contracts with major armor companies and, you know, major um, aerospace, you know, all of the the bomb companies and ballistics companies. And let's drive the economy through this. And these are the companies we're supporting in NRA, NRA, NRA. But that is all perpetuating the giant government thing that they all sort of pretend they're pandering to fear, right? I mean... The idea that the government is too big, that if we put all the weapons in the hand of the police and the army, that the people won't have an opportunity to fight for themselves against the government. But you go from like, you know, gay marriage to abortion to um, drug policy to, you know, I don't know. It just seems like they don't really know where they are on any of this stuff. They do not have a clear, concise, practical point of view where where I that I read and say, huh, you know what they're they they've got something there. Like I see where they're coming from there. I may not agree on A, B, and C, but D, E, and F. I mean, they're not exactly stopping the hemorrhaging of money we're doing. They're not balancing the budget. They're not like they say they're going to, but they're they're not like they're not proposing a like a reasonable economic plan for creating a more viable and thrifty. Government spending system. Yeah,
1: I mean it's an interesting question, and I think it's you know I think part of, part of what you said is exactly why a lot of really smart people are writing articles these days talking about the you know the actual disintegration or breakup of um, you know one of the nation's two like long time dominant political parties because of the fact that you basically it's almost reached this sort of, like, uh, mass or weight where a lot of the views start to almost become incompatible between what different, you know, it's like if you're all standing on this, like, you know, iceberg and, you know, people on one side want one thing and the other on the other side, and eventually with everyone jumping in down, there's just going to be cracks and then a big chunk of it is going to drop off and float somewhere else. And that's kind of, like, where it's at, that there's all these weird juxtapositions uh, that are maybe sort of, like, finally
0: starting to become like unable to you know be ignored well and their entire premise of stay out of other people's business which is sort of like the very simple back end of a lot of the principles if they're going to be true to that principle they need to stay out of our business and not tell us how we're going to do it so it's like right away they have a problem if the liberal, if the you know, progressive, whatever you want to call them, and whether you're with it or against it, doesn't matter. If the back end of their philosophy is we're going to impact your lives through governmental change, they have much sturdier ground to stand on when they're trying to say, like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we want to do this, we should do that. If the Republican thing is we're going to get out of your life, well, okay, so then what, do you, what are you standing here about to tell me? What do you have to say to me about my life if you're going to stay out of it?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, dichotomy. I, I totally agree, but it's, you know, it's one I thought even with like, you know, in the, the good old GW years where it was like, um, you know, it was, it was railing against big government, but between the Patriot Act and the fact that, you know, spending went up like sharply, uh, you know, you were the government, like, in some ways increased a lot. And it was this weird thing where it's like, it's bad, but we're going to make less of it. But with the other hand, we're actually going to, like, make it much more powerful and invasive.
0: So that leads into tomorrow. Is it, is the caucus tomorrow night or Tuesday night? Tomorrow night. It's happening tomorrow. So, exciting announcement. My friend David Temple and I are going to do a podcast this week where we tell the story of working for the Howard Dean campaign. Both of us got internships for Howard Dean the summer of 2003, 2003, whatever we call it, o three, And uh, we sat next to each other at desks all summer. And then we both elected to not go back to school and to work for Dean um, in place of going back to college the following year. And then we both got sent out to Iowa. So we're going to, in honor of the eight-year anniversary of Dean's Meltdown after the Iowa Caucus, there's actually a short 10-minute film coming out on ABC through uh, 538 that's about the Dean Scream that stars Howard Dean. It's a 10-minute film just about the Dean Scream. So all of that excitement, obviously Bernie Sanders and the Iowa Caucuses, we're going to kind of tell the story of. Our time with Dean and our time in Iowa during the caucuses. So that should be a pretty good podcast for anyone who's listening right now. Check back later in the week. Um, but good that, plug, good plug. Thanks. But I, look, I
1: I think it's crazy that um, I mean Dean was like a long time ago. It's it's crazy to think about just how many years have really gone by since Dean, and that was just really right at the beginning of you know we were you know that we were talking about like you were talking about with the shooting like the fact that like we have to see everything and like that was really the very very beginning of kind of the whole like social media information age where now we you know we do see see everything and we hear everything and everything's you know recorded and then it's just there and like you know in some ways you know that's sort of what dean kind of very unintentionally
0: uh kicked that whole thing off right the vir- he went viral before anyone yeah but he kind
1: of went he went
0: viral before you knew a viral was. yeah Yeah. he went viral he went viral the old-fashioned way um yeah and and he didn't want to and like it's almost unfair because no one
1: even knew that you could go viral
0: well i also hope to actually talk to the director of that piece gabe knows him and might set me up with him because it's if you if everyone should just look for it online, I'm sure it's gonna air it probably aired yesterday on the Saturday George Stephanopoulos thing. But it's called the Dean Scream. I'm sure you can find it online. It's ten minutes and it's great. And Howard Dean is in it and he gets interviewed now, and he's he is quick correction by the way, it was twelve years ago. That shows you how long ago. I said eight. I was, it was gonna twelve say years. Much yeah. more than eight, yeah. It shows you exactly why I worked for him. He sits in front of the camera and gets interviewed at length about the scream and he comp- he doesn't blame anybody else even though the entire movie is about how the mics were isolated the news media ran with it you know that the reason he lost wasn't because of the scream but because he lost Iowa and all those details I'm going to tease for for David and I's discussion I mean the story behind him losing is not the scream it just kind of was the icing on the cake but um, he stands there and takes it, and he's such a straight-talking, simple, you know, empathetic American person who's who ran for president because he believed in something, and it wasn't this like massive masturbatory exercise the way that Donald J. Trump is making it out to be. So I think I think we got to do a little Trump here before before. But con- here's
1: but before we get to
0: Trump, here's here's a quick question because. You mentioned Dean's
1: performance in this video, and it made me think immediately of how Romney was, like, so criticized for being kind of wooden and, like, you know, out of sync, you know, and all, all of that stuff. And then he aired in this documentary, and everyone who watched it was just like Romney's. He's, like, we didn't know he's funny. We didn't know he's human. We didn't know he's got a, you know, wittiness to him, you know, and a kind of liveliness that we never saw. And everyone was saying if only this documentary, like, had been, like, basically his campaign, then it could have been different. Not that he would have won, but he would have come across in a very different way. And it reminded me of the same thing with, uh, with Al Gore, where people were like, he's, right. he's wooden, he's robotic, he's dry, he's hell, he's boring. And then an inconvenient truth came out, and people were like, wait a second, like, he's got a great sense of humor, like, he's interesting, he's engaging. And so it's, to me, it's kind of interesting that like, if these candidates are, I don't know what they're really like, obviously, but if these candidates do have these kind of human qualities and a documentary or a film can show that so easily, how can they have these multimillion dollar campaigns with these staffers making huge amounts of money and these experts on image and, you know, all of that stuff, not getting that Simple point, And it seems to kind of happen again and again, you know, whether with Dean being seen as angry or Gore being seen as, you know, boring or Romney being seen as, you know, uh, you know, inhuman or humane or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a weird, funny thing, I think, that the campaigns can't kind of like get that from the beginning.
0: Well, I think one element of it is, I don't know. I mean, one element is the way the media tells the story and not just how they choose but that it, to create something, to create a quick turnaround on a media piece, radio, television, web video, blog post, even, you know, a newspaper article, you kind of just have to, it's like, you know, both of us have written a lot. You've written 100 times more than I have, but still, you just have to have a point of view and go with it, right? I mean, pretty much any essay can support any point of view, you just come up with a thesis and then you support it. And I think once someone comes up with a thesis for a candidate, you know, Jeb Bush, it's that he's like underwhelming and boring and like a little bit flat on his feet. And Ted Cruz, he's like greasy and crazy, but like whip smart. And Donald Trump is full of himself. And Hillary Clinton is a liar. And, you know, Bernie Sanders is crazy and he'll never get elected. It's like, there. it's either, it becomes either you're writing that story or you're the one in ten people who's writing the story that maybe they're not that because somebody also needs to, like, swim against the tide. But there doesn't seem to be a huge effort to sort of make a cross-section happen or make a, you know, I don't know, completely move the story inside out or, or at, to every point there's a counterpoint. So if you say that he's funny, someone else says say he's not. or I don't know. I mean, I think also people are more likely to embrace your strengths when you're not trying to win something. Once you've lost or you've retired or you've decided to not try anymore, people put a golden light on you that they didn't necessarily have when you were vying for something because of the sport of rooting against people, because of the sport of wanting people to fail, because it's entertaining, um or having someone who you wanted more than them. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean look at like it's like I know that when Peyton Manning retires in five years when I see him at some on some T V show I might not hate him as much and not that I actually hate Peyton Manning. But it's like I already have better thoughts about Peyton Manning now, knowing that he's about to play probably his last Super Bowl than I did five years ago when he was in <laughs> when he was like more threatening to me. So, yeah, totally. totally. He's, he's
1: checking out pretty soon, and that makes us feel better about him and, and judge him less harshly.
0: So Al Gore, he doesn't threaten anyone by making a document. I mean, some people were threatened by it, but the general public, the the mainstream, the people who think that generally no one has is an evil person, they're just doing what they think they should do. Like, even look at George W. Bush. Nobody... I don't have... I don't have a hundredth of the venom I had towards him at the you know the 6 months after he won a second term. I like I couldn't pull my hair out enough when I had to watch him walk up to to the press conference, you know, after he beat Gore or after he beat John Kerry and yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was just like I can't believe this idiot's still our president. But I don't know. It's a good question. Um, and I think So it, look, that brings us so look, that can
1: that can bring us to the question of someone who is trying to win something very much and is arguably not letting the media like craft those kind of uh you know pre pre-ordered meals about him. Um and that's obviously our friend Donald J.
0: So Donald J, I the, the thing for me above all the things to talk about him is I sit there and I think to myself, and I cannot imagine him being president, like I just can't do it. my brain, my cognitive brain can't convince myself that it is a reality could you do you think there's a chance that he'll be president
1: <laughs> i think i i'm not saying that there's uh i'm not saying I think he will i 'm not even saying I think he'll you know be the nominee um I think it's impossible however to argue that there's a zero percentage likelihood based on how he's doing i'm not saying i think he could you know i'm not saying that i I think he could like you know win in a general election or anything like that but i you know you compare compared to three or six months ago it's impossible to make those same blanket statements he has a zero percent chance because every
0: time people have said that he does better and better you know I think it's it's a couple of things. First of all, polling, if I was a better political scientist, political journalist, if I was one at all, because I'm not, uh, it would be interesting to analyze what this means about polling. And I've seen a few headlines from some political wonks about does polling even, is it accurate, is it, does it matter? Because I think that the polling numbers that Donald Trump has right now are the most... I'm learning a lot about standard deviation in business school and the idea of the importance of standard deviation as a measure of your risk, right? You have a projection of, let's say, the number of ski parkas you're going to sell that year. And then based on a bunch of data that you've created with your team, there's a standard deviation, which means that like, there's a 65% chance that the amount of ski parkas you think you're going to sell will either be... The number you said minus that standard deviation or plus that standard deviation? I mean, it's a very simple statistical concept that most people probably remember from like seventh grade. So for me, I think no one has had a larger deviation of the facts than Donald Trump. His numbers could be as low as two thirds less than what they say they are. And I guess you have to state statistically that they could be as high But I I think they're skewed. I think it's easier for people to say Trump on the phone. I'm not sure that the people who say Trump on the phone are going to go to the polls. I'm not sure that they're going to actually vote for him. I'm not sure that they can vote. They might be 16 years old. Who knows? So that's my first thing. But I guess to go back to my original point, if we can agree that the chance of him actually being the president is very small, because we don't see him getting through all the hoops that we know exist, which we could go into in detail, then I don't really care what he's doing. So it's like such an easier interaction with him in general. If you believe in your heart that he will not be inaugurated, that you cannot believe you'll see him march down Pennsylvania Avenue, that he won't stand out there and give an inaugural address, that he won't go to... The state of the or the yeah the state of the union in front of Congress that he won't be going around the world on Air Force One if you can't imagine him in those places and I think that's what it comes down to Saul I don't think enough people can imagine him there and I think that that's why he's not going to be there then it doesn't matter what happens between now and the election because you don't have to put any time and effort into worrying about it
1: Well, I I disagree completely I think that um, by the, by that argument you I mean you could simply say Let's not worry about anything, you know, in the election. And you know, I think that, um, you know, to, I mean, six months ago when he was polling at three percent, you know, compared to now, you know, it's like you can say that he's um, got an equally unlikely chance of gaining, you know, a nomination or the presidency or anything like that. But it's, you know, it's ignoring that a lot of things have kind of um, shifted in ways that, to my knowledge, not a single person in the entire country except Donald Trump predicted, arguably, he's been the only one right so far about what's happening with his campaign, you know, and all the very smart people who wrote piece after piece about piece about this dooms and this is the end. And here's where his candidacy peaks. I spent about two hours yesterday reading reading articles that I'd already read three or four months ago, you know, from August, September, October from very you know, intelligent people talking about specific moments, Trump's gone too far, Trump's done this, here's where we'll start to see him flaming out, here's why he's like McCain or Bachman or something like that. And the funny thing is the only person who's been right about his success so far is Trump himself. Now, tomorrow you can talk about, you know, whether the polls are an accurate representation. You know, this Iowa one has him up five points with a 4.4 4 plus or minus points margin of error, and it gets a lot of things right. But to me, if he doesn't get first, he's going to get second. And you could argue if absolute worst comes to worst, the roof caves in, he maybe would get third. But he's not hes not going to get shut out, you know? And, you know, quite likely he's going to finish either number one or two, you know, just about 24 hours from now, a little more. And quite likely he's going to win New Hampshire. And so to me... It's impossible just to say. Like, let me let me give you an example. The Huffington Post said we're not going to cover Donald Trump. He's going to go in our entertainment section instead of our political section. And to me, they're absolute idiots. And they ignored one of the most uh, unexpected and significant political shifts in the really in the last fifty or hundred years. Not just Trump, but the people behind Trump, the people who can see Trump getting inaugurated in the White House. And they just said, oh, no, it's a joke. We won't cover it. But the point is that, like, it's it's important. It is worth covering, not just as a person, but as
0: a phenomenon. Oh, you make a lot of good points. I, I guess I'll explain to you why I think he why. Well, it's exciting, right? So, first of all, it's like somebody put together a new sports team let's say basketball team and instead of drafting tall people they've drafted all short people that no one could catch up with they could dribble around in circles and they've and the coach and the general manager just kept on saying to the press we're going to be so good we're going to be so good we're going to be so good we're going to be, so be so good and they they've had a few preseason games where they've even just had a few practices where they look so good and where the only video released is them looking good and where you know, they, people still like, this will never work. This will never work. But finally they get to play a game on Monday. And so finally we get to see what's going to happen with Trump. And the speculation is great ratings for everyone, but the proof will be in the pudding because he still has to do some like political action that he's never done before and that his organization has never done before. And so all of a sudden it'll be, is he the best hype machine I mean it's ridiculous. He's like I'm doing great and then he does great. He like literally paints his own portrait of himself and says it looks well, yeah, you're, it looks amazing yeah. and then and then there's this huge group of people who say that it does look amazing. It's so weird. Even though it looks well, awful. No, it is. It is weird and it's it's to me it's
1: fascinating. The whole thing's fascinating, but again, the whole point is yes, you to use your analogy, it's exactly what I was saying, that, yes, you've drafted a team of really short people, and they're all hyper-confident, and they're all saying we can go beat a normal NBA team of really tall people. And tomorrow's when we're going to find out. Tomorrow's you know the opening game of the season. You know Tomorrow's when we're going to find out, and if those short people do win, or if they have like a razor-thin loss, then that's going to be saying something about the justification behind their conflict.
0: All right. Well, here are the two things that I think are working against against Donald Trump. And this is from like an actual practical political standpoint. The first is Iowa. So the Iowa caucuses work like this. It is not going into a ballot box and putting a ballot into an electronic reader or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I, I, I know that. You know yeah, that. Know. But hold on. Let's explain it to our listeners okay okay so because it's a podcast right um so the iowa caucuses what does that mean if a caucus is when your community it's your precinct within your county gets together at a central location usually the high school gym town hall whatever you all get there a much smaller amount of the eligible voters vote in a caucus than in an election because you show up at 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. in your district it's not like you can vote all day long so there's one window a lot of the people going are seasoned political veterans people who have been active in their community politics for years and of course we all know that that number that percentage of people is getting smaller and smaller every year based on the political apathy of this country now iowa might be higher but still And then you go there and you don't do anything secretly. You actually assemble in a corner or an area under, ostensibly under a sign with your candidate's name. So there'll be the Cruz corner, there'll be the Rubio corner, there'll be the Trump corner. And if you don't get a certain threshold of the total votes, your votes don't count and you have to reallocate your votes. So my thing is I don't think that Trump's ground game in Iowa is very well established because he was late to get there because he's a lot of like fire and ice or fire and I don't know what is he he's like flash and bam he hasn't the other candidates like the Bush I know that Jeb Bush is in the tank right now but whoever the other guys in Iowa are the same way that Rick Santorum won Iowa like four years ago. He's had operatives there for, they've had them there for three years, making relationships and organizing people for this one two-hour window. So I think Trump's going to have a smaller turnout. I think in a significant number of polling stations, his group is not going to be big enough to be counted. They're going to have to reallocate themselves. Or if that's not the case, then the other people, if they do have a threshold, the other people who don't have a threshold are much less likely to go to Trump. If you're first Well, no,
1: no, but Alex, let me explain why I why I disagree and why I think that everything you're saying is just making it more likely for Trump's success.
0: Okay. Cuz I can't wait. I mean, you're... this is great. We're we're betting on what's going to happen and we can we can see this is exciting. And we're and we're on record. If you if
1: you look at if you look at
0: the numbers right
1: now, you have you have four people in double digits. You have, you have Trump at, I think, 28%. Then you have Cruz at 23%. Then you have Rubio, a big step back, but it shows that he's gaining ground in the last few days, and I believe he's in the teens, but I don't know the exact number. And then you have Carson, somehow insanely, at 10%. And then everyone else is in single digits. So because of the way the caucuses work, to me, First of all, this is something that, you know, like I I can't prove what I'm saying and you can't what you're saying and we'll know tomorrow. I personally think that a lot of the people who have been going to the Trump rallies are going to treat the caucuses basically with like a rally like mentality. They're going to like the fact that they can show up in a big group and cheer on their candidate. And I personally think that he is going to see a lot of the turnout that they're talking about from people who haven't done this before, not from the seasoned political operatives, from people who don't give a shit about politics and don't like politics and don't like politicians, but are fans of Trump and are excited to get behind it. So I think that actually the kind of group spirit of the caucuses could end up playing pretty well into Trump, given the whole notion of the Trump rallies that he's been doing for so many months with so many thousands of people. Secondly, He's not going to get wiped out. It's a, I mean it's, it's, impo- it's basically impossible. He might, like I said, worst case scenario for Trump as I see it is third place, but he's more than likely going to end up finishing either one or two unless a lot of a lot of you know, polling experts are completely not connected to the reality. And so to me, then you're going to get Carson with his 10 percent. those are the people that might not have enough to end up making a caucus and need to split up to other candidates, there's only two people those people are going to consider going to. It's going to be Trump or Cruz. He's going to get everyone you know, from Carson because those are the two people who are appealing to that segment of voters, unless somehow they end up going for Carly, who doesn't you know, have enough points to do anything. So to me, if anything, those numbers could slightly increase from the Carson crowd and then, again, you're looking at, like, the rest of the people in single digits. They're not going to win Iowa. No one's talking about it. It's not, you know, it's not going to happen. You, you're not going to have Christie or Bush or, you know, Carly or, you know, Carson or anyone else. taking. You know, you're not going to have those people winning Iowa. So, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where we can argue. We could argue for the next, you know, 30 hours about it or so, and pretty soon we'll know. But that's how I see it.
0: All right. Well, in my projection or whatever, my in my world where I, that I hope happens, I think Trump could. Well, first of all, these are who these people are voting for: Cruz, Trump, or, or Ben Carson. Are you kidding me? Well, that's. I mean, that's another. You know, we, that we that... want to
1: go there. We can go there. I, I personally, you know, that's that's getting into different territory. All right. I mean, I've talked. To, I've talked to people, and I think it would be great to have someone call in who really does support those people, and you know, can explain why, probably better than we could. But that's that's getting into different territory. Okay.
0: Well, if if okay, fine. If Trump wins Iowa, then he will win New Hampshire, and then it's going to be interesting. So, so well, if, no, I think I think he'll win New Hampshire even if he doesn't win. If Iowa.
1: he gets third, he'll
0: win New Hampshire no matter what. If he gets third in Iowa, he's going to be the biggest disappointment of the last six months. And everyone who says they're voting for him in New Hampshire will start to scratch their heads and wonder if they really are. And that's exactly what happened to Howard Dean. I just want you to know, I know it's different, and I know Howard Dean had a different story. And specifically in the last two weeks before the caucuses, there were a lot of bad signs in Iowa, which there might not be for Trump internally. But everyone, Howard Dean was – like uh, three weeks or a month before the caucus, Howard Dean's polling numbers were sometimes in the 40s in some places. And then he got third, and then everyone in New Hampshire changed their mind because of the screen, but also because he lost, and nobody likes a loser. And I just think all of a sudden, the John Kasichs, the Carly Fiorinas, the Jeb Bushes, the, we grew up in New Hampshire. We, the the like middle-of-the-road Republicans who we grew up around are not Trump supporters, and I know that there are gonna be some fringe people and I guess unfringe people who are Trump supporters. I don't know. I just, I guess if he wins both and he ends up being one of the two or three people who keep running, I think Mike Bloomberg runs. And I think the other, so that's how he loses. And I think the other outcome is that he gets third in Iowa, Ted Cruz wins, and I guess Rubio gets second. And then he gets second in New Hampshire and then he starts being such an obnoxious twit that he becomes so unlikable to a larger majority of people. And as people in bigger states start to pay attention, he has it down. No to way.
1: Out. No, no way. No, he's, he's, if, if anyone doesn't like Trump, they're not going to like him any less. They're only, <laughs> honestly, they're only going to, it can only go up though, um, and they, you see it in the debates, you know, from the first debates where he was, Making fun of people's physical appearances to the last debate, where he gave a pretty eloquent, you know, uh, answer about the state of New York after, you know, um, September 11th. You see, Trump, you know, in small but perceptible ways, he is holding himself, you know, sort of to a more presidential standard as he gets the hang of this politics thing, and as he starts to, um, you know, gain this kind of energy behind him. In terms of Bloomberg running, by the way, Bloomberg running isn't why Trump loses. It's why he wins, because then you end up getting a split vote with Bloomberg as an independent, Hillary presumably for Democrats, and Trump for the Republicans. And that's how you end up potentially, to me, with Trump actually winning the White House, not yeah. losing
0: it. Yeah, but I, well, I don't, well, I don't you think Bloomberg is an out for Republicans who don't want to vote for Trump more than he is an out for Democrats who don't want to vo- vote for Hillary? I, I See, that's the thing. I don't understand why everyone thinks that Bloomberg screws, I don't know. Do you think Trump loses to Hillary straight up? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I do too. I think he unless,
1: unless, some, unless some really unforeseen thing happens in terms of, you know, the the State Department investigation. But barring any event that it's impossible to kind of guess, I think, 100% for sure.
0: Well, it's fascinating, Saul. I mean, you laid out where, like, we have this, this, uh, you know, just juggernaut that I'm trying to come up with all these bridges that we can explode so his marching army can't get to our castle, and yet you keep seeing him finding boats to cross and finding people building bridges and clearing the way for him. And maybe he has to get all the way to the end before he loses, but I I still can't see him being the president. I mean, What
1: what I think is fascinating about Trump is that he has taken this, like it's like everyone else is playing this two dimensional game and he's suddenly walked along and he's looking at it in three dimensions. And what I mean by that is there's all kinds of, accepted rules for what you have to do to win and what you're not allowed to do to win and what you do to ensure your own defeat and what you do to give yourself every chance of victory. There's so many rules in politics and suddenly you get someone who ignores them and just kind of does cause it the the play as he's seeing it in that moment. And it's this fascinating thing to watch participating in the debate. Everyone says, you know, you obviously you have to debate It gains you exposure it introduces yourself to the voters. You know, it's something that you have to do. No one even considers not doing it. And then uh, Trump says, I'm going to skip the debate. And his, and his numbers go up. You know, as many people, the majority of the people polled say, we don't care that he skipped the debate. And he does that with, you know, the comments he makes, how he gets into it with Fox. The one thing you're never allowed to do is a Republican. So to me, it's fast, that's what fascinates me about Trump, the fact that, he decides to do things not based on the accepted system, but by this other system that he sees. And so far to say it's worked exceptionally well would be a pretty big understatement.
0: Well, you're more informed about this than I am. Cause I haven't watched one debate because I think it's disgusting. I think he's disgusting. And like, you know, I, I wonder why I I'm so vehement about that. Like, I don't necessarily. Th- well, no. It's because he's such a. He is the epitome of conspicuous consumption. Doesn't seem like he has any sense of the greater good, or the uh, impact that his decisions might have on anyone other than himself. And so. Well, you
1: can you can say that, but the people who like Trump think the exact opposite. And I, you know, I'm not not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that they they couldn't think as a more polar opposite opinion than, than what you just said. To them, here's a really wealthy, successful guy, a really honest guy, who's decided to pause his own really successful life to try to help them and help the country. And I'm not saying anything about, like, I'm not trying to sound like a campaign promise or anything. And obviously, I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's what Trump supporters
0: like about Trump, or that's a big part of that. Well, it's certainly an interesting time, because if he becomes more real, I guess I'll have to become more concerned, or at least more engaged. And the uh, it's not like I'm pumped about the alternative on the opposite side of the, of the aisle, so... Yeah,
1: well, again, we'll know, you know, I I think it'll be great to have this conversation next week, you know, in light of whatever happens tomorrow. And obviously, one of us will have to um, offer some sort of abject apology for being grossly wrong about about their predictions. But that's kind of part of the fun of making predictions that are being recorded.
0: Probably he'll get second and we'll both have to sort of kiss our sisters, which sucks. Um all right. Well, I think that th- I think we should leave it there. I think that's uh, that's a great way to to leave me wanting more and still allow me to do the significant amount of business school homework I have due tomorrow that I haven't even dived into as a result of going to New York and getting parking tickets. All
1: right. Yeah, I think that's a good place to wind down then.
0: And um, you've been an exceptional guest. I th- there's a lot of uh, great optimism in my brain about this podcast and i'll let that let all the listeners know uh saul and i are going to try to do this regularly we will uh as time goes on we're going to develop some consistent themes that we have in our heads um that we think will be entertaining and insightful it sounds like the political process over the next year is going to maybe be one of them um because you're starting to pique my interest in the whole system again. I mean, if if he starts to win, it's going to be really exciting to see what all the people who don't want him to be president start doing. Because um, that's, that's a dragon that has not reared its ugly head yet. Well, no, um, it
1: has, though. It definitely has. You
0: think? I mean, I don't. I really don't want him to be president, and I haven't done a damn thing about it. I haven't given money to anybody. I haven't even, like, spoken out against him to anybody. I think a lot of well, the... Just
1: to, just not, to, not to jump back into it, but for one thing, a lot of the things they could have done, it's somewhat, if not too late, it's pretty late in the game to do. And I'm not talking about president. I'm talking about nominee. And secondly, a lot of the people who... Um, couldn't imagine it are starting to and they're starting to approach him and think about it basically saying he might be better than the alternative which seem you know which which for the time being at least you know is, is looking awfully like you know Cruz and a lot of people are saying as as crazy and bad as President Trump sounds maybe it's maybe there's worse things out there and maybe instead of throwing our support heavily against him we should start to try to figure out what it would be like to work with him. Well,
0: would you agree with me that there are many more plot twists that are yet unforeseen in this, uh, in the drama that is to unfold between now and an election day, like national election day.
1: I I think it's fascinating. And I think there's, there's a million things that are going to happen And we have no idea what they are. And that's, what's made the last few months fun. And that's, what's going to make the next couple of months pretty interesting. Absolutely.
0: Do you have any um, parting shots for, for the listeners, for any tips or uh, shout-outs, concerns, comments? Mostly
1: just to point out that um, out of the 23-line agenda I wrote up, I think I just counted and we covered
0: 1.5 lines. So um, obviously we got plenty of material in the bank for next time. Are you setting an intention for this week? An intention, my God. Let's do that. Like, Let's set an intention for the week. If we're going to do a Sunday podcast, and I'm going to edit it and put it up by Monday, which is probably going to happen about 30% of the time, um, why don't we set an intention for the week? Because that's that's an allusion to yoga, which I'm getting into, and which I think you do somewhat, and that's always a great topic, uh, men at yoga, so... I'll, I'll set, yeah, I mean,
1: I'll, let's. My my intention is really that we should spend a few minutes next time talking talking about yoga because we I think
0: we both have a lot to say about it. My intention for the week is to continue to focus on the parts of my overwhelming education that are most exciting and opportunistic for me. I have a wild buffet of educational and professional windows in front of me and my stomach my proverbial stomach doesn't allow me to to put everything on my plate so i did a great uh a great many things last week to put myself in a position to leverage the opportunities i was excited about and to not worry about the things i wasn't um which i think is something i'm trying to get better at in life in general pick the doors i want to open but then also not worry about what was around the doors that I kept closed. So my intention is to continue down that road this week. That's a good one. Thanks. Um, my intention is to go out to dinner at least four times. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's... And each time order an average of three plus courses. <laughs> Can we put that on the agenda for next week? I'd be happy to talk about it. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it, Saul. Great job. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can listen on iTunes. Just search for Landline. You can also listen on SoundCloud. It's soundcloud.com slash Podcast, And of course, the main site, talkforaliving.com always has the podcasts up. Look forward to a couple of voiceovers coming into the podcast here in February. And if you liked the pod, if you were into the politics, we're gonna have an insiders breakdown of 12 years ago and the Dean campaign with David Temple, a uh, technology entrepreneur currently living in San Francisco, like Saul. So, uh, or in the San Francisco area. So, thank you for listening. Thank you, Saul, and we will talk to everybody soon.
1: See you next week. Goodbye. Bye.